Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For some, air miles are a passport to new and exciting places. For others, a source of frustration. What can you do to get the most out of your miles? The Prue's retreat from the annuities market signals the latest setback for these beleaguered retirement vehicles, What should savers make of it? And the siren call of private equity. Is it wise for individual investors to get involved? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. The invention of air miles held out a beguiling prospect for frequent flyers, the notion that they could gain access to untold travel opportunities to exciting or exotic places, without taking a big hit to their finances. In reality, the experience of most punters has been patchy. The flights they want are often never available or require thousands more miles than they could ever realistically accumulate. A handful of ultra-travellers, however, seems to have the whole business nailed down, funding year-round travel and luxury hotel stays in a virtuous circle of miles and loyalty points. What can these connoisseurs teach the average air miles user? I'm joined in the FT studio by Naomi Rovnik, digital editor of FT Money, who's been looking into the issue. Naomi, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Who are these ultra air miles users exactly and what kind of lives are they leading? Well, I interviewed a fantastic young US millennial, Ben Schlappig, who earns a fair living from blogging about luxury travel and consulting people on their own luxury travel, but manages to live a life that is worth many, many, many times more what he actually pays for it. So he mainly, well, he lives in five-star hotels. He's homeless, but in a good way. And he mainly travels first class. And he does this by doing what we would think is slightly bonkers things. So for example, living in Abu Dhabi and the other parts of the UAE in sweltering desert heat 40 plus over the summer because that's when the five-star hotels are their cheapest that's not only because he wants to live in the air-conditioned hotels each time he stays at a hotel he makes sure that he earns points from their loyalty schemes he racks them up they can be so for the least dollar spend he's getting the points those can be transferred to flight points so used for miles funded flights and he used a bunch of them last year to stay on his own private island in the Maldives for four days at a cost of nothing. That's extraordinary. So so they managed to do this by a combination of hotel stays and airline flights. 
Absolutely. The idea is to spend the least possible on flights or hotel stays that will rack you up or run you up the most miles. They call them miles runs or mattress runs. I've found another wonderful chap. He's a great server to the community. He's an IT worker, a magistrate in North London. But when he's not sort of sitting in his slightly dowdy magistrate's office or the industrial estate that he works on with his IT company, he is living the high life. And he does things like find business class fares that are kind of cheap because there's a new route or a competitor to BA has opened a new route and BA is fighting back. So last year he went from Dublin to Hawaii, I think a couple of times. The business class flight was less than a thousand pounds, which is cheap, but he earned enough miles to fund flights to places he would prefer to go. How do the airlines actually decide on the value of an air mile and does it change? Sadly, it has changed. In the old days, in the 80s, when airlines customer knowledge was less because IT wasn't so sophisticated, you were rewarded for flying. So you could fly economy a lot. Say you were a traveling salesman flying around the US a lot on, you know, in coach, as it were. You could still rack up enough miles with AA to have a nice kind of business class flight or upgrade every so often. But what's changed is you're now rewarded for what you spend, really. So the amount of miles you can rack up for a business class or first class flight, perhaps you're even lucky enough for your employer to be funding those, are so much more than what you can earn on an economy flight. If you're an average family taking a couple of economy flights a year, you're worth very little to the airline and they'll give you very little back. Can I take my air miles earned with one airline and add them to another lot? You need to use airlines partner networks. So some, most airlines are in partnership groups with each other. So you have to work out which club you're in. Are you in One World? Are you in Star Alliance? Within that alliance, you'll often find that the airline that's best to earn with isn't the best one to fly with. So, for example, Emirates appears to offer better reward flights than BA, but BA might be better for you to earn with because you fly routes that BA uses a lot for your business, for example. Thanks very much, Naomi. That's Naomi Rovnik, FT Money Digital Editor, whose cover feature on air miles you can read in FT Money this weekend as part of the Weekend FT or online from Friday at ft.com money. Next, more woe for the annuities market, which has now been disappointing customers with low rates of annual income for several years. Its problems were compounded when George Osborne came along with his pension freedom reforms and retirement savers were, at a stroke, liberated from the near requirement to buy an annuity. Now the PRU, that stalwart of the UK financial services industry, has this week signalled a retreat from offering annuities on the open market making them available only to its existing and direct customers, not through financial advisors. What does it all mean for someone considering where to invest their retirement savings? Joining me to discuss the prospects for annuities is Billy Burrows of William Burrows Annuities. Billy, welcome to The Money Show. Hello. First, why do you think the Prue has taken this decision to move away from annuities? I think there are three reasons. First of all, in all fairness, they haven't been a top three annuity provider for some time, so that's no surprise. Secondly, it's been very difficult for insurance companies to price annuities with solvency too. Solvency too basically means insurance companies have got to hold more capital against their annuities. Yes. And thirdly, you know, drawdown is the new default for people. So um, the proof fund, for example, is you know very successful for them, and they probably feel that they can invest their capital more successfully in that area. Do you think others are likely to follow suit with that? 
Well, I had a ring round yesterday of the top providers and I spoke to Retirement Advantage, LV, Aviva, Canada Life are one of the mm. top providers and they're all committed. They make the point that you know a lot of annuities now are sold with medical impairments, enhanced annuities, and that's a really growing part of the market for annuities and they're all very committed to that. So if there's less competition among annuity providers, despite what you say, there's one less uh, available. Do you think that's bad for buyers or or do you think it won't change the... Well, I think we've already sort of seen that. I mean, I've been making the point since pension freedoms. There's no real appetite for, you know, the keen rates that we got before pensions freedoms. But I guess we're really waiting for interest rates to rise again. Yeah. So in terms of the future, do you see the move to drawdown continuing? Well, I see a number of things happening. I mean, first of all, the key to the annuity market is to watch what happens with gilt yields. And I keep saying that if gilt yields increase, perhaps the full benefit won't be passed over to annuitants because of you know increasing life expectancy. But I think on another issue, you've got to feel sorry for people retiring between a rock and a hard place, low interest rates, volatile stock markets. And I'm a great believer in not putting all of your eggs into one basket. I think the future is more about looking at combinations of annuities and drawdown and companies like Partnership and Retirement Advantage now have products where you can combine annuities and drawdown in one product. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, That was Billy Burrows of William Burrows Annuities. Uh, You can read more about the Proust story in Saturday's FT Money at ft.com slash money. Finally, the private equity industry often comes in for bad press from those who say the fees it charges and the leverage it loads onto companies it owns are far higher than they should be. Well, questioning the tax break, the scale of the tax break, it gets through carried interest allowance. Presumably then, a sector to be avoided by individual investors. Well, our adventurous investor columnist, David Stevenson, has been looking at the pros and cons of private equity. He's here with us today. David, I think it's fair to say you share some of these misgivings about private equity, correct? Yeah, yes. I mean, look, you mentioned the key ones, which is, you know, the outrageous tax break, I fail to see how that's defensible in any way. And you also mentioned the leverage, which is a big issue, and a systemic issue. The amount of securitizations of loans from the big private equity companies which are sitting on bank balance sheets is amazing. And then, you know, absolutely right, the fees. You know, this is one of the last holdouts of the 2 and 20 structure. And, you know, there's lots of outfits out there, failed investment bankers who turn up in PE for outfits <laughs> and then basically charge huge fees for the ability to financially engineer stuff. So, look, I share all of those criticisms. Nevertheless, I do think it's interesting that some of the most successful long-term investors in the UK, people like Neil Woodford, people like James Anderson at Scottish Mortgage, a whole raft of people of successful public market investors think that investing in smaller private businesses that are not listed is one of the things that all investors should think about. And how do you access private businesses? Now, one of the ways of accessing private business is through private equity. And the better PE houses focus on, for instance, mid-market stuff, you know, companies, you know, in the kind of 50 to 500 million pound range, which may not want to go on a stock market, get a quote. They may be happy to stay private and have PE firms invested in them. And I think that if you are interested in tapping this huge pool of of private companies out there, then PE funds are an interesting way to access that private business story. 
So those are the options for individual investors that you're suggesting in terms of no direct investment in no. private equity. But not unless you've got a few million in, sitting around. Yeah, so, <laughs> so yes, we're not, we're not encouraging them to become private equity partners. But, no, uh, no, no, not at all. The, but we're talking about the types of investment we're talking about, yeah. funds or funds of funds. Yeah, so the main options you've got is three or four main options. The first one is you can invest in some direct PE firms. Yeah, They have versions of their fund available on the stock market. For instance, I've always been a long fan of people like HG Capital, which has had a long track record on the stock market you can access its funds via a stock market vehicle and you can quite often it's an investment trust to invest in private equity second version is fund of funds and they invest in a series of underlying private equity funds the biggest is pantheon which is you know has investments in loads and loads of firms and i suppose the third one which i don't talk about because it's a slightly separate area is you can look at vcts and eis based structures which are more tax structures and actually some of the bigger eis and vct orientated providers their fund managers again are in effect P firms. I mean, Octopus, for instance, very active in the tax-efficient savings market. It's a very successful private equity player. Very good at investing in early stage, relatively early stage tech-orientated businesses. Got a good track record. And that introduces the definition of P versus VC. And people tend to put VC in a separate category, slightly more saintly, because it's investing in younger and faster-growing businesses. But they are really private equity in many respects. They're part of the private equity spectrum. They're just early stage PE people. And, you know, VC is an interesting area to go in and that's probably where the tax efficient vehicles are more operating in. And so if I'm an investor in or if I'm wanting to invest in private equity through these vehicles, what should I be looking for? What are the warning signs for those that aren't performing so well? Well, I mean, one of the most interesting signs, I don't know if it's a full warning sign, I don't know if it's right to be a warning sign, is if it's a listed fund and it's got a very big discount to the share price, the market cap versus the overall book value of the fund. And if the shares are trading a discount to all of the value of the fund, it's called a discount. And if that discount is above 15 or 20%, that's usually seen as a warning signal because that says that investors have lost confidence. Now, that might not always be actually a kind of red flag, yeah, because actually for sometimes sectors go in and out of favour and those discounts can be quite wide simply because it's become unfashionable. So classic example is Pantheon, which is actually a fairly decent track record as being a fund of funds, okay? It's not actually horrendously expensive by comparison with everybody else. It's got a big discount. Now, I don't actually think that's a red flag. I don't, they've done a perfectly decent job. It's gone out of favour and people are a bit suspicious about the whole sector for the reasons you and I talked. So they should look at that. The other thing they should look at is fees. They should still look at fees. And you should look at what the total cost of ownership of these are. And look, they're never going to be as cheap as the low-cost tracker from Vanguard and iShares. You forget that. <laughs> You're always going to be looking at TERs of you know 1% to 3%. But I think if somebody's taking 4 or 5% in total expenses, you know, so that's the manual management charge for other costs, I do regard that as a bit of a warning sign. You really should stay away from those guys, no matter how successful they are. Well, thank you very much indeed, David. Pleasure. That was David Stevenson, adventurous investor, whose column you can read at ft.com slash money. We'd love to know what you think about private equity, pensions and air miles, or money matters more generally. You can get in touch with us via email. Our address is money at ft.com, or you can tweet us at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else we'll feature in this weekend's issue. As we go to press on Friday, we'll have the first sense of the repercussions for investors, savers and homeowners of Britain's referendum vote, whichever way it falls. Merrin Somerset-Webb will be giving us her views on what it means for money readers. Plus, we have the latest share tips and director's deals from the Investors Chronicle. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Goodbye.
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.